Hello and welcome to another episode of Sim Sundays presented by GridFinder. Today, I am joined by Tom and the fabulous Chris Hay. You've probably heard his name around the sim racing community. This episode is actually sponsored by Track Racer, just like the last one. So if you're looking to upgrade your sim rig or just get off of that desk-mounted setup, you know, go to trackracer.com to check out some of their stuff that they've got going on. Tom, how you doing today? Want to intro our guest? Yeah, I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I'm excited for this one. This one has... Uh, Me too. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know what it is. I feel very relaxed this episode. The last couple have been basically chaos where I've been trying to work out my sound settings until the last 10 seconds. And today it was up until the last like minute and a half. Um, and I think it's because it's Chris. So Chris Hay, a sim racer, YouTuber, and enduro car veteran of the Gridfinder team. Welcome to the Fact. show. Uh, it's it's amazing to be here, and it uh, you know if it put your mind at rest at all, I had all of the audio issues uh, on the uh, the prep for this. So uh, glad to take on some of the uh, the sort of company responsibility there. Well, thank oh. you. It's appreciated. It hasn't gone unnoticed. And what the other thing that hasn't gone unnoticed is the heat. Now, Chris, you are a tech guy, right? You like <coughs> hardware. You like your your cameras. I, I saw that when you were setting up filming, etc., for the uh, enduro car. You were very much into the gadgets, so I know you're a little bit nervous right now. How are the gadgets holding up in the uh, in the in the balmy summer heat? Well, 45 seconds into the podcast and uh, everything's still working. The uh, <laughs> the lighting, I can feel the heat coming off of it. Uh, the camera on the back is a little bit hot to touch. The computer is spitting out hot air onto my feet, so I'd say <laughs> you'll be dripping great. in sweat by the end. It'll be great. <laughs> <laughs> Dear listener, if you're listening on Spotify, Apple, Google, and it's the autumn or winter and you're listening back to this episode, know that we've really fallen on our swords for you today. We are all absolutely <laughs> suffering to bring this podcast together, but it's worth it. And we've got a nice, easy track. So to, at, the end of the, at the end of the podcast, the drive around. Uh, and you've got a nice car, a nice, easy to drive car as well, Chris. So yeah, we, should be sweat <laughs> yeah, we shouldn't be sweating too much, but we'll, we'll come on to that. So... Chris, thank you for having um, thank you for having us. Thank you for having me, Chris. That's I'm what not, I'm supposed to say. I'm if such I wasn't an so ungrateful. I know, I know, I know. Thank <laughs> you for coming on the show. Is what I'm trying to say. And I was thinking about this episode before we started, as I always do. And I was thinking about kind of the questions to ask and and kind of what what road do I want to go down. And obviously, it's difficult for me because obviously we 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 know each other. We've we've, uh, we've done a lot together in the past. And I also remembered. I've interviewed you before. You have? Really? <laughs> I have. Is I that have. both of us forgot it? Yeah. That oh, you did, yeah, yeah I, for, the, uh, for the article. Yeah. The, the comms Bible. I'm not sure where the comms Bible is at the moment. It was a, it was a great idea. It was a, it was a sim racing magazine. I think a few more have come along since, but it was one of the early ones. Um, and we went through an hour, I think, of, of interview. Um, and yeah, I really and that was just it. question one. That was, that was just question one. Yeah, we uh, we do like to we do like to talk. We do we do we're, we're very similar, you and I, in that we do when we get going, we really get going. So Chris, as in Gridfinder, Chris, our Chris, you're going to have to really police yeah, this. We're gonna... There's there's, uh, there's been a few conversations, and the one that I remember um, the most was, and you're you're gonna I'm gonna see the smile come across your face here. Was we were sat in the sunshine drinking a beer on the uh, the, the the rooftop bar at the pits at spa on the way back from sim racing expo last year watching the cars going around the track just thinking oh, 
imagine what it would be like to go racing in real life. Like we could make this happen. Like, we could, we should, we should do this. And it just went on and on and on. And luckily, we had another twelve-hour drive right back from Spa all the way back to <laughs> to Milton Keynes. So we had we had time to flesh it out. We did, as it happens. Yeah, um, I was back there a couple of weeks ago, and it's it's hard not to sort of go back to to that particular memory because it was just one of those lovely moments. We were driving back from Expo. Uh, we thought we'd just go and have a, you know, you'd never been to Spa, so we thought, you know, it, the road goes right past it, you should at least be able to go and have a look at it. There was a track day on, so we just nosed our way in, uh, so bribed really the security guard, yeah. uh, <laughs> wandered in, uh, went up to the, the bar over the pit lane, and uh, apparently you hatched a plan that, you know, sort of spiraled out of control fairly soon afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at that point, I was like, oh, this this could become a thing. And uh, and Toby, who's in the chat, obviously was monumental to to making that happen. But I want to go, I want to go back, right? So I've, I've I've spoken a little bit about the conversations we've had recently. But um, I first discovered Chris Hay um, somewhere off the coast of Qatar in about two thousand. It would have been two thousand twenty, February or March time. I was at sea. I was on a big ship going from Qatar to France and COVID had hit. And I'd been told that I was going to be stuck on this ship now for months. It was meant to be six weeks, but it, was going to be, it ended up being about five and a half months. And this is where my passion for sim racing was born. So I came across some YouTube videos about sim racing. I'd never kind of gone into it very much at all. I didn't really know what sim racing was. Uh, I'd done a bit of Gran Turismo and Formula One, but that was it. Um, and I came across a couple of videos and I was really interested and I downloaded them when I had a little bit of Wi-Fi in Qatar and uh, I watched them between Qatar and France. And in that time, I was like, oh, you know what? I could really get into this. I, I love all the, the aspects of it, the racing, the, competitive, the competitiveness of it and the hardware. Everything was, was kind of speaking to me. So I was like, right, when I get to the next port, I'm going to download a load of videos that I can watch for the next couple of weeks at sea. And I downloaded your series your beginner's guide to sim racing i think it's one through 12 i think it is 12 episodes and i downloaded them and then i watched them back to back at sea between france and wherever the hell we went we went next somewhere else in the world <laughs> and i remember at that point at the end of that series being like right yep sim racing is for me and i know everything about it <laughs> oh. <laughs> right and your opinion has changed since yes <laughs> And then I met you. I was like, oh, okay. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, first of all, uh, rather glad that you didn't end the story by saying I discovered Chris passed out in a bus stop, which is how a lot of those stories start. <laughs> but uh, yeah, well, we had a, we had a follow on from that uh, with, uh, with Darren, who was sharing the, the car with us earlier in the year, who uh, I think after the third or fourth time meeting me, finally worked out that he knew me from those videos as well he'd, he'd watched them and he got he pulled this crumpled bit of paper that was one of the pdfs i put together out of his back pocket and he said look, look, i use this i've got it taped to the sim rig so <laughs> it's certainly a uh, it's a, i think it's a that series of videos which is focused mainly on sort of car setup and some of the sort of technical stuff uh it's a pretty common onboarding point for I guess what I would describe as the type of person that's already sort of drunk the Kool-Aid and wants to, yeah. uh, to take it a bit more seriously and, you know, throw their life away into the sim racing well. Yeah. And how did you get to that point? Because that wasn't your first video, not by a long shot. 
I and again, I, I appreciate that some of these questions I've asked you before for the Comms Bible uh, interview, and I remember the answer, and I remember it being really cool. What was your first video? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think the first video I actually made, whether I uploaded it or not, is a bit hazy now, was just a sort of standard man drives car, does some commentary video. But uh, the thing that sort of, I think, inspired me to get started on YouTube um, after years and years and years of sim racing mainly on my own in, in single-player stuff, a little bit of online stuff, uh, was Assetto Corsa was, was really booming at that point. The modding scene was really booming. And I was starting to see, uh, search out mod, uh, videos about mods that I liked the look of when you know, I had downtime and I was bored and definitely not at work um, you know, to find out what was good. And you know, there wasn't really a lot of content that was covering that side of things you know people like jimmy would occasionally do a uh, you know a race in in a good mod but you know that was probably about as close as it really got and there were people uploading compilations of just like a lap of them driving a car but it didn't say anything about it so i thought maybe i can give it a go you know i had a background in photography i was a professional photographer for many years and so I sort of had like one aspect of it there and I'd been to art school for university and there were enough pieces that I thought I could give this a try. And uh, that first video did quite well. The ones that came after less so for a while as I was sort of finding my feet and working out how all of it worked. And yeah, it was probably about, I'd say it was probably a good hundred videos or so before I got to that setup guide. So um, I think that's one of the big aspects of YouTube that, well, it's very easy for me to forget is that, you know, it takes a lot of time to sort of refine what you're doing and understand your own voice and where you sit in the, the sort of niche and surrounded by all of the other creators and everything else. So there's, uh, yeah, it's a bit of a journey. That's a cool journey because I actually found you from the exact same collection <laughs> of videos. And I've watched it through probably three or four times now. And um, I'm sad to say, I still don't know how to set up a car correctly at all. <laughs> in, in any you, know, you, know what it, you know what it is? It's, it's a practice thing as much as anything. So I understand the theory very well. But if I go for a long time and don't do a setup on a car in a particular sim, I'll start again. And, you know, it takes me a few passes at it to really get back to where I was. I think like any skill that requires retention of a huge amount of knowledge and then sort of filtering that through like the specifics of the thing you're doing, uh, you know, you really do need that kind of routine, you know, switch off the brain part to work rather than having to uh, right. access the memory banks or worse, you know, actually, you know, I've had to dig out my own script for that uh, for one of those videos at one point in the past where I was just like, does this work this way or does it work the other way? Because you, know, you just get yourself confused. So yeah. uh, I wouldn't feel too bad about that. <laughs> well, sim racing is one of those amazing things where like, you don't necessarily have to be good at it. You just have to love it, you know? Um, Absolutely. I've, I think we've all fell into the, the habit of, you know, you buy your first wheel and it may be this little cheap one that maybe doesn't even have force feedback and... That's when you you go, wow, I can really see how this would would all of a sudden be very addicting or very fun. You know, I, I say addicting, but fun in general. And then you're in that never ending, oh, I should get this wheel. Oh, I should get this base. Oh, I should get these pedals. And then that brings us back to, you know, people like you, content creators like you, that there's so much information nowadays on sim racing, 
you you type best pedals for sim racing and you can spend a whole entire evening thinking that a different set of pedals is the best pedal each new yeah, video you uh, start us, watching. Us content creators are very much the problem, not the solution <laughs> to that particular uh, aspect of the hobby. But I, look, I always maintain the point that if you want to upgrade gear, you should do it because you want better feeling, because you want a better experience of sim racing, not because you want to go faster. Uh, because, you know, as many people will know, loads of hot lap leaderboard times are set on, you know, 15 or 10, 12 year old Logitech G25s. Yeah. I would argue maybe it's a bit more difficult to be consistent on that kind of equipment and that, you know, there are equipment upgrades that you can do that do bring you uh, the ability to have a better feel from the sim, a better understanding of how it's communicating with you. But realistically, yeah. um, you know, I, I've got all the gear I could ever want here. And, you know, it, a really talented kid with a secondhand G25 or G27 or something is still going to kick my ass. Yeah. Yeah. I've, cause I, I'm a kind of a hot lap kind of guy. I, I don't normally go and race other people unless I happen to be racing with Tom over here. Cause he likes to push me onto those servers, which ends up being fun. But I, on a day-to-day -day basis, I like to go and just do hot laps. I'm on the track by myself. I can throw on a Netflix movie and just kind of hang out, run through some laps. But I always, I'm always like, maybe if I tweak this little setting or tweak that little setting on the wheel, I'll just get a little bit faster around corner <laughs> two. And it's never the case. You know, someone, someone's 30 seconds faster than me for some reason. And I, you know, just have to sit back and go, well, whatever. I guess it's just for fun <laughs> in the end. And that's what draws me to games like uh, Forza Horizon and just kind of the open world, have a blast, drive a bunch of cars, do crazy stuff. Um, what was your first sim game that like grabbed you completely and I'll use your phrase, made you drink the Kool-Aid for sim racing? <laughs> I don't think I coined that one. I think it was a much, much darker no, no, no. situation than, than this. I, I We're going to repurpose I mean, it for I, good. I, <laughs> okay um my entry point to any driving game at all sim or otherwise was probably the most common for for anyone in the uk at least in their in their 30s and probably the best possible start to funnel you into the sim rabbit hole it was the first microprose grand prix game uh jeff Crammon's, uh you know second or third third i think actually technically um racing title after the you know very popular revs but this was the first proper you know full color attempt at producing a formula one title it came out in 1991 my yeah. dad no i think it came sorry it was the 1991 season it came out in 92 my dad got it um on his uh, 286 or 386 or whatever intel computer we had at the time and you know i was six or seven years old and in love with formula one so of course i was going to try it and it was and is still brilliant, far ahead of its time. And uh, for a long time, with the exception of the progression of that series of games, I don't think there was a lot that matched it for you know, a really significant period of time. I don't know what Jeff uh, is doing these days. Uh, I think he stays out of the, uh, the public spotlight, but uh, he is definitely someone I would love to talk to about how sim racing's developed since. Right. It's all his fault. <laughs> Write that down for a guest, possibly. Hey, if you, if you can get crammed, you're uh, you're doing better than uh, so many others that have tried. <laughs> that we'll put that on our dream list. 
Thanks for the, for the recommendation. So what was your first wheel that you ever got? Well, that happened uh, a couple of years later when Grand Prix 2 came out, again, Crammond, uh, and Microprose. And uh, my father brought home a second-hand Logitech, no, sorry, wash my mouth out, a Thrustmaster T2, which was <laughs> the, the second, I think, wheel they ever made. Uh, I made a video, uh, I bought one again a, a year or so ago, and I made a video restoring it and uh, oh. making it work on modern hardware on the channel, which is, it was a passion project of mine. It was a video that took weeks to produce and you didn't do so well to start with, but it found an audience, I think, amongst the sort of retro gaming enthusiasts more than sim racers. But, you know, it's this, by today's standards, horrible, plasticky, tiny thing that you stick on your desk. Uh, no force feedback. The... Uh, only feel you get through the wheel was self-centering that's provided by uh, a bit of cut-up section of uh, common bungee cord. I mean, it literally has all the little oh, really? stripes and stuff that you'd normally get. Like, they didn't even get a bespoke bit of elastic to do it. They <laughs> literally got bungee cord and cut it into lengths, tied it off at Why the Why reinvent the wheel? Yeah. The, I mean, yeah. That, that probably <laughs> helped you restore it, though, because if it's just common things that you can go pick up at the well, hardware very, store you're like oh it's very just much i was uh, i didn't even have to go to the hardware store i, I had enough <laughs> uh spare bungees lying around that i was able to uh to replace those bits but i mean yeah so you that don't was your get modding that was so that was your starting <laughs> modding in in, in yeah. some ways <laughs> yeah there you go indeed i should have upgraded it really to a, a slightly <laughs> uh, higher spec uh you know military grade bungee or something but uh no the the thing with that is that you get because it's an elasticated spring, you get quite a lot of uh, force towards the end of the uh, yes. extension of the elastic, but very little towards the center. And anyone that's ever driven a wheel without force feedback will know it's keeping the car in a straight line, just those tiny fine movements that's a, a nightmare. And some proper self-centering uh, force around the center would have been very, very, very helpful. And when I plugged <laughs> it in and fired it up for the first time, the uh, upgraded one, it brought back all of the memories good and bad about trying desperately to control you know 200 mile an hour formula one cars with a wheel that really doesn't <laughs> want to stay exactly in the center yeah that that reminds me of the experience i had with the logitech g29 actually so i loved that wheel for a very long time until right in the middle section of it you know just like you're saying when you're trying to go straight there's like this little gap between the gears that you can you can go back and forth and there's absolutely no response in the force feedback system, but your car is still going back and forth, back and forth on the track. That's ultimately what made me go, okay, it's time to to change out this equipment because <laughs> this is bugging me enough to the point where now I'm not enjoying using this hardware anymore. And I I, I don't want to accuse in, you of having a uh, a a psychological issue called gear acquisition syndrome, uh, which I know I definitely have. <laughs> but uh, I, too, invent very small reasons why I desperately need to yeah. uh, upgrade gears. <laughs> I'd I'm like, I can't go straight. That's why I'm losing time. I can't go straight. <laughs> and, of, and of course, you know, because of this tiny little gap in the center, you're like, well, I need the DD2. I need, I, because <laughs> only the DD2 will solve this problem, <laughs> which is where you went. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. And... Um, now, speaking of Logitech, I noticed uh, very, very casually, you said Logitech and you said, oh, no, I got to wash my mouth out. Thrustmaster. Is there some kind of disdain there for Logitech product? No. Of course, 
Not at we're, all. We're just joking. <laughs> no, um, I think, you know, Thrustmaster were earlier in the game of, uh, of Sim Wheels, and I think it would be doing them a disservice to, uh, to take the credit away there. You know, Logitech, at the time, it would have still been a, you know, a large, fairly mass market uh, PC peripherals manufacturer, which is, you know, where, uh, you know, Fanatec sort of started in that market as well, uh, and then, then specialized into sim racing products. But um, I think Logitech were quite a bit later to the wheel game than, um, yeah. than Thrustmaster were, so who were very much in the, you know, flight sim and, and, and racing space yeah, early on, um, the simulation space at, to, at the very least. Flight sims are where I first started hearing Thrustmaster's name around uh, around my interest levels because you know Ace Combat or X Wing versus oh, Tie Fighter, great you know, game. Whatever, I love Ace Combat. Like yeah, those are those are fun. Um, part of me has thought about maybe doing a a small bit of flight sim upgrades to everything, but and then you go look at the prices, and I was like, oh, I thought <laughs> I thought sim sim racing was like the outlier in the cost of upgrades but no you can get full like full cockpits from a jet that have all the switches and all the bells and all the things i would have no idea how to use as well um yeah but you would so. you would start flying on your controller and then there'd be this little dead zone there'd when you're trying that... to fly straight and you'd be like well i'm gonna have to get a full wraparound cockpit get... now <laughs> otherwise i, I just can't fly cockpit. straight <laughs> So well, speaking uh, of which, not joking. sorry, I, I have to continue this thought because uh, <laughs> around a week ago, I was uh, I was driving home from an event fairly late in the evening, and I passed a uh, the sort of front, forward fuselage section of uh, Harrier jump jet on the back of a of a, a low loader in a supermarket car park, and what? my first thought wasn't why is there a Harrier in the supermarket <laughs> car park? It was I bet someone's turning that into a sim. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's Full funny where your motion. brain went. Yeah, yeah. I'll be arriving at Chris's house uh, in about three weeks' time. I would be dangerous with a budget. I think uh, that much <laughs> that is clear be. at this stage. <laughs> I'll be. Da- I would well, be know, dangerous with a budget. That is a great quote. <laughs> <laughs> so Accurate let's talk about too. sim racing gear f- for a minute. So we're at a point in sim racing gear where things are things are really really good at at the moment, right? I mean. Things feel realistic, well, realistic in regards to simulating something, obviously. Do you think there's a lot of room for us to get better and better and better features on these things? Or do you think we're kind of at like a almost tipping point where things are going to kind of slow down and stop almost? I think that's a really great question. It's something I've been thinking about and and talking to people in the industry about fairly quietly uh, recently. And there, I think particularly when it comes to wheelbases. Um, we've had technologies that have had their time. Um, the gear-driven stuff is very much uh, a thing of the past now. Uh, the belt-driven stuff is, is dying off, and everyone is flooding in with uh, direct drives at, at every price point, and they're all pretty similar in, in the way they go about their business. Sure, there are differences in the type of motor used, although they're subtle. There are differences in the control electronics, but again, you know, that's uh, a lot of that's price pointing and uh, and quality that comes with that. Fundamentally, they're all quite similar. Um, And then there's the software that controls all of them. And, you know, we've all got to this point where I think that side of, say, the direct drive market is quite mature. Um, 
yet still more companies flood into it. And, you know, it's, it, I think we're going to see uh, some of the bigger names finally revealing their, the bigger sort of mass market names revealing their offerings very shortly now. I, uh, not going to say any more about that, but the, right. the point is <laughs> you're going to have dozens and dozens and dozens of options to go and buy a, a direct drive wheelbase shortly. And the differentiators really are more down to things like the ecosystem and what kind of peripherals you want to use it with, whether you want compatibility with consoles as well as your PC or consoles alone uh, and all of that kind of stuff, more so now than it used to be, which was, you know, when there are only a couple of options in the market or even before direct drive wheels, it was all about performance. So, yeah, I, I, I think you're fundamentally correct in the sense that in terms of wheelbases, there's a, a level of maturity and things already have started slowing down. So, in answer to the second part of the question, you know, what happens next, essentially, is, well, maybe we see a different type of technology enter that space that changes the, the business side of, of how that works. I think uh, one of the things that Tom and I have discussed about going and driving in real life is, um, you know, where the differences seem to lie between sims and, and the real world driving really aren't things that are going to necessarily be able to be replicated well through the wheel now. Uh, and you end up with the fundamental physics problems of being able to, you know, simulate some of the, the physical forces stuff that really does inform how a real right. car behaves. And, we might. I think we're in a process of refinement in uh, force feedback within games. We're in a process of refinement with how the wheels themselves process the force feedback signals, how they bring in telemetry separately from the game uh, to augment that, and how you filter it, how you um, it, the individual settings and controls uh, influence that signal. And you know, we're at marginal gain stages. I think. And uh, sorry, I appreciate this is a very very long oh, answer right. uh, on a very technical, probably potentially quite <laughs> boring subject. But uh, uh, I yeah, that's fascinating. I think that I think that's where I'm at with it. I'm waiting for the uh, I'm waiting for the great leap forward to uh, to quote Mr. Billy Bragg there uh, on uh, that technology. How about, you know? It's interesting. Go ahead, Tom. Sorry, I was just just to um, pick up on that. How about VR? Because I still think there is significant headroom in the VR space. VR is okay but gamers are now used to 4k 144 hertz this that and the other and the head tracking eye tracking resolution depth perception in vr is actually quite limited there's quite a lot more that, that, that they can and are doing in some of the prototypes so do you think that will play a, a part in in the sim racing hardware game uh maybe yeah it's it's an interesting question i was an early adopter of vr i had a um an, an early version of the the rift which i loved uh you know it, it came along at a point where i was getting really seriously back into sim racing after you know just sort of playing uh, a few sort of casual games for a few years and it was brilliant the first time you put a headset on and you jump into particularly like an open wheel car i think it was a formula four car or something like that and i looked down into the apex of the corner i can see through the suspension into the apex it's like wow yeah that's what i've been missing this is brilliant yeah um the spatial awareness that you get from that the depth perception the uh there is no doubt in my mind that that helps but all of the things that you've said are still despite significant improvements an issue with 
VR, uh, as is practicality to some extent, because depending on your sim racing discipline, VR can be quite uncomfortable. You know, um, if you're going to go and do a, a 12 hour endurance race and you've got to do a triple yeah. stint in the middle of it, mm. um, you know, three hours or four hours in the car in VR on a hot summer's day is just horrible. <laughs> it yeah. really is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I still have this feeling that despite everything that's great about VR, I, st I still wonder if it will always remain secondary to monitors just because of the, <clears throat> the practicality side of things. You know, and I yeah, hope, I hope I think, I'm wrong. I think you're, you're pretty accurate there, honestly, because four out of the five people that I had actually sit at the sim rig with the Oculus Quest on in AC, they've gotten motion sickness from it. So now I don't suffer from that, luckily, but there's a lot of people that can play video games on a monitor perfectly fine. Nothing happens to them, but you throw a VR headset in there and then all of a sudden their brain expects the G-forces and expects to feel things differently and then they just get that little bit of a, a queasiness that doesn't allow them to play the game. So I think you're accurate on it's just it's always going to be kind of a niche thing that uh, is an accessory on top of everything else that we have. Yeah, maybe maybe when we're at the stage uh, where, you know, Google Glass style headset um, where you can see through augmented reality, you've got airflow through it and all of the other good stuff, um, you know, and some clever, clever stuff to sort of trick the motion sickness problems. I think those are all things that could be technologically solved. But, yeah. you know, uh, at, at what cost, you know, how do we power the unit? Um, how do we yeah. run all of this, uh, you know, these ridiculously powerful computer signals to it? Because I don't know, you, you know, you guys have been involved in gaming long enough to know that there's rarely ever a point where your PC is uh, powerful enough to do everything you want it to do for more than, you know, mm. 12 months no or matter something. How so far. Like, every, everything always scales. Yeah. And, and it scales us. Yeah. And then if that is strapped to your head as well, like, you know, the, the heat that would come off of that to, to achieve what we want it to achieve, <laughs> you'd, you'd come out of a gaming session with like a kind of panda style sunburn around, around the eyes. <laughs> <laughs> we just need so, to go back to old school X-Men, the cartoon days and have the danger room, you know, right. you walk into the room, close the door and then boom, you're, you're at spa or you're wherever <laughs> and you're just getting into a car, right? That would be the day. That would be the day. That would be great. Where were you at hardware-wise when you made your first video? So what, what, what stage had you got to in your hardware journey when you were like, you know what? I think I could do something more with this. Um, well, it's an easy one. Um, when I got, as I say, I, I've been racing in sims with various level of seriousness since the sort of mid-90s, but... I didn't do a lot from about 2010 until 2014 when Assetto Corsa turned up. And I bought a, a Thrustmaster T300 because that was the, that was the wheel at the time. Uh, the, I think the TSPC was out as well, but that was, you know, it was a bit more expensive. And it, mm. uh, and it wasn't obvious what benefits it really, <laughs> uh, really gave, <laughs> which I think is a perennial problem for Thrustmaster, is uh, understanding that ecosystem. I try, I, you know, I'm a, I, <laughs> I'm a member of the industry. I talk to uh, all sorts of people about this stuff on a day-in, day-out basis, but still sometimes I get confused about which wheel exactly does what. So uh, it's, it's funny how things don't change as much as anything. But no, I had basically what was the 
you know, one of the two entry-level wheels at the time, which would have been, I think the G27 was still the current Logitech wheel, although the G29 would have launched about that time. Or the Thrustmaster T300, they were just sort of the two two wheels that were about. I went with Thrustmaster for reasons. I, I know the exact reason. It's because they did a, a Ferrari 599 rim mm. uh, yeah. in, with Alcantara yeah. around it, and that just looked miles, yeah. miles better than the... Uh, and the sort of uh, you know plastic you know pretend car rims that came, yeah, came yeah. with the the other Thrustmaster wheels and the and I did the, the exact same the thing. I went. I was <laughs> I was doing that Logitech G twenty nine T three hundred. What do I do? What do I do? And I saw the open wheel add on wheel for the the Thrustmaster. Yeah. You know the Formula rim, and mm. that was enough for me. So I chose Thrustmaster because of the wheel, not because of the base. Well, I mean that's. <laughs> Well, you know, they'd kill me for saying it, but that's a, you know, 90% of Fanatec's uh, business model, isn't it? You know, you give people enough options, there's going to be something that appeals to them. Uh, obviously seems to work on all of us. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> they figured something out, right? Oh, for sure. So, so, so yeah, I think my point, sorry, with the, the point with the T300 there uh, is that, you know, to be a sim racer... Uh, you don't need expensive equipment. To be a content creator in sim racing, you don't need expensive equipment. To be involved in communities or building things or creating outside of the sort of YouTube space, producing your own stuff, modding, etc. So none of this requires high-end equipment. And I try and stress it as much as possible, even though I do review high-end equipment. It's like all of this stuff is nice to have. None of it really mm. is going to massively change your life. It might make you uh might make your experience while you're driving better but ultimately at the end of the day if you've got a wheel that produces force, force feedback and you can understand what the sim's communicating to you then you've got most of it there i think right yeah. right now you mentioned uh you said i'm part of the industry which we i think we all would agree when was the turning point when your content went from i guess just like a a small operation where you're just having a couple followers and then all of a sudden it started exploding and brands started contacting you and you started really, really kind of diving into the world of sim racing content. Yeah, it's an interesting question because it's difficult to answer, if nothing else. But it's what everyone wants to know. Like anyone that wants to get started in, in creating something for social media is always really keen to know what's the point you know it's going to, you know, it's working and it's going to be a thing. And, and there's no like most things, there's no one single turning point. There's no light bulb moment. There were, in the early days, I didn't have anyone contacting me to, to review stuff. So it was all stuff that I bought or borrowed from friends and, uh, and scrounged and, and those kind of things. And I've always had a policy of not really reaching out and asking for stuff from manufacturers. I don't know why. Uh, to start with, I didn't really feel like I could provide the return on investment that was was necessary while I was still learning the ropes. And as I've sort of progressed through, it's got to a point where I can't review as much as I'd like to. And I, you know, it's going to sound like an awful first world problem here, but, you know, I have to turn down a lot of stuff. So I think that the, it's very difficult to define a tipping point. There are a few points along the way where I thought, okay, this this is a thing, and if I apply myself, I, I can make uh, I can make something out of this. Whether that's just something I'm really yeah. proud of, or whether that becomes a career, or or whatever, 
you know, I think it's probably worth mentioning that uh, when I started putting videos on YouTube, no one was, uh, there, there wasn't really a single person in the sim racing space that was doing it full time. There were people like Inside Sim Racing TV who, you know, were running that as a business, but, you know, Jimmy uh, hadn't reached 100,000 subscribers at that point, you know, he was maybe at 60 or 70K, uh, you know, streaming from his shed, and, you know, that was clearly growing. Uh, but there wasn't, yeah, it, the the landscape and the size of sim racing has expanded so much during that time that it's very difficult to to think of that. I think the 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 one thing that really stands out as something that changed the way I looked at what I could do with this uh, this whole YouTube thing was being invited to be part of the broadcast team uh, in 2018 for the then fledgling SRO uh, <laughs> eSports series, uh, which was the you know, sponsor by Blancpain at the time. Um, and, you know, be, being invited out to, you know, Monza and Spa and Nürburgring and all of these places that, you know, are, are dreams, are absolute pipe dreams to be able to just go to as a fan, let alone be invited into the paddock and to talk to drivers and, you know, be around, you know, this racing series that I've been following for years and it was, was really heavily into at the time. So it was a, it was a dream job and it opened my eyes for two reasons. One, that, you know, people within the industry had a level of trust in, in what I was doing that I wasn't going to cause them any issues. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and number two, that, you know, there's a lot of money going into that. And that, if people are putting that kind of money into sim racing, then they see it. The money people see the value here. And when the money see people see the value, other money people see the value. And as we've seen over the last three or four years, the influx of, well, everyone and their dog into the sim racing industry with uh, <clears throat> seemingly endless uh, pockets full of cash <laughs> has uh, rather changed the, the landscape a bit. So... Uh, again, very long answer for what should have been a simple question. My apologies. But it was no, never no, going to be a perfect. simple answer, right? There's so many different factors. <laughs> There's so many different signals that you'll have to have been watching for to be like, oh, okay, this is a thing. But like, if you don't mind me saying that when I think of your content, I think of your videos, I always think of three things. I always think of the hardware first, because it's one of the first things that, that I saw. Then I think of the setups. And then I always think back to your starts in modding. So those 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 got the the three things I think. Now, what I'd like to know is how much of that was intentional. So when you started, did you just do do the classic? I'm going to do what I enjoy. I'm going to test things out, see how it goes, or did you have a bit of a strategy that you've got these kind of three pillars and you're going to just try each one? And at, at what point did you think I need a strategy because this is becoming a thing? <laughs> and how and how did you what did you you know how did you then come up with that strategy? That's that's a great question. Uh, certainly to start with, there was, uh, there was no strategy, uh, no strategy at all. It was just making videos that entertained me and, or on uh, subjects that I hadn't seen other people talking about, uh, particularly on YouTube as a platform and, and in video. Um, I think to some extent, as the follower number started to grow quite rapidly, I realized that certain content works better than other kinds. And there has been 
a constant background struggle in my mind since that very point that I, I started to understand a little bit about how the algorithm works and how the audience responds and what you need to do to um, kind of please both sides of that coin between the idea that realistically I really just want to make videos for me but if I want to see the channel succeed and to grow and to continue to be pushed out to new audiences I also have to play the game so for example um, if you're going to produce uh, a video comparing the four cheapest sim or the four best entry level sim racing wheels on the market say for example you know the, the to, best time switch to the name the, yeah <laughs> but yeah so yeah put four over comparing four entry level sim racing wheels i could put that out today and it would it would because it's kind of evergreen content it would do fine but if you put that out in late november when uh people are searching to buy a sim wheel you know they're searching for gifts for people there um you know the ad revenue is better at that time because all of the companies are churning churning money in for the christmas spend the sim racing companies are sponsoring it as well and it's a delicate balancing act between keeping the audience happy and keeping YouTube happy. And YouTube is at its happiest when it's making money as well. So um, <laughs> as much as I would love to say, yeah, I only make the videos that entertain me um, that I want to make. And I'm approaching this as the same way I approached everything when I was at art school. The reality of the situation is that there is more strategizing needed and uh, it's, an ever-evolving process and i can give everyone that's here a bit of life advice don't get in a room with two or three youtubers at the same time because <laughs> you will lose your mind listening to them discussing <laughs> the finer points of the algorithm and trading strategies and stuff and you know i've i've been in rooms with with other sim racing content creators where we've got onto that subject and I've, people have literally died like you know the the case is pending you know it's it's a genuinely horrible situation to find yourself in it and i wish it upon no one which of the categories do you have you enjoyed the most because you've obviously you've obviously explored a lot and you've even done a little bit of streaming but i know that's your kind of least preferred you do it more for fun with your community than anything else but mm. of all the the videos you've done the categories the little the niches even which ones have the one have been the ones that you enjoy the most the ones you remember I'm not sure it's necessarily niche-based, but it's anything that I can do something creative and, you know, really play with the form of creating video and telling a story and uh, narrative of the visual storytelling side of things. And anything like that is, is the reason I do this. Uh, and sadly, that doesn't happen with the gear reviews. So that pretty much straight out, the, the gear reviews, if I had to drop one type of video, I think it would be that straight away, just from a purely uh, enjoyment side of it. As much as I, you know, I, I find ways to make them interesting for me, and I, I do mess around with the format quite a lot, and uh, I find ways to enjoy the filming of that. I think anything uh, that... You go all in, that... you, you, you go all in on, that, <laughs> on, the, on filming hardware. Uh, sorry to interrupt, because I just want to pick up on that. Like you, Your hardware videos are not just your standard hardware video person holding thing, looking at things. Like, you've shown me pictures of the, the rigs and the, like, the, the, the panning <laughs> thing, whatever that's called, that goes across, and the way you set up the lighting and the surfaces. And so there's an element of creativity. You, you've, you've found your own way to make that creative, right? Yeah, I mean, and that's, 
I'd say 80% for my own amusement more than anything else. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I do it that way because I was a commercial photographer and I have an interest in cinema and, uh, you know, I want to create things that are visually interesting and, and, and beautiful more than I want to necessarily create a comparison review between two very similar sim racing pedals, for example. Uh, so for me, the enjoyment probably more leans into the actual, the, 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 the creating side than the actual informative side on, you know, that particular kind of video. So, but, so it's always for me, it's the videos like the building a mod track uh, of, you know, based in uh, the airfield next to where I grew up, where my parents' house was. And, you know, I walked around as a kid. It's uh, restoring the Thrustmaster wheel. It's going and doing those documentaries uh, that we did with Gridfinder, uh, with, the, with the racing team. It's anything that is an enormous amount of hard work, it takes a massive amount of planning, it's days and days of shooting, days of editing, just a massive amount of work, but produces something that I think is unique and nobody else in the sim racing space has done. And occasionally, maybe no one else could do, but I, I don't allow myself to think it like that too often because, uh, you know, that's keep the ego under control. But as I said earlier, I'd be dangerous if I had a budget. And if, if I showed you the list of videos that I want to create, I probably have a hundred plus video ideas that I would need a team of five or six people and a budget of 20 or 30,000 pounds just to realize each of those ideas. That's what I'd love to do. Whether that is even remotely plausible on my journey is a question that is well beyond my pay grade. But yeah, I think that is the woolliest answer to a question I've ever given. But yeah, I just, I love the creative stuff. And your creative process for choosing what you're going to do next because I, I always this is a, this is something about content creation that always baffles me is you put any content creator put so much time and effort and soul into a project and when it when it's finished you then put it out to the world and then they tell you what they think of it you know with their eight minutes of watching plus 30 seconds of writing you know that's the amount of time that goes back into these comments but these comments mean something how have you found that well i think first of all it's interesting that you think they watch the whole video before uh, before getting ragey on the keyboard i think you're being very charitable tom for the most part i get very very little uh, abuse in in the comments um whether it's the type of content i make or the way i make content i think maybe it attracts a um slightly more mature audience maybe I'm completely wrong, uh, and I'm not egotistical enough to think that you know I'm I'm, I'm doing a better job than those that do get uh, more abuse. So I, I think it must be down to the demographics. But yeah, the the reality of YouTube is that you know you do get some pretty vitriolic and pretty insane stuff written from time to time. Mostly in my case the stuff seems to be people that are just a bit misinformed or they've misunderstood. I, uh, and I, I can't believe I'm about to say this because I think it's manifesting destiny again. I made a joke in a video a couple of years ago. I can't remember what the video was, but it was, uh, it was on Formula One. It was some sort of Formula One-based topic. 
uh, within sim racing, not on just Formula One itself. And I made a, a comment about Max Verstappen at the time. This is long before the Lewis rivalry and all the craziness that's kicked Uh-oh. off between both of those sets of fan bases since. But I made a comment <laughs> that was relevant to something Max had said in the press about the Codemasters Formula One game that week. And I can't remember what it was, but it was something like, you know, uh, I really enjoy the uh, Codemasters Formula One game, despite what Max has said. It was something really innocuous like that and really specific about it. But I still get maybe once or twice a week, people finding Max Verstappen fans finding this video, misunderstanding what I'm talking about, because it's two years or three years removed in, from context and getting some pretty, uh, pretty spicy abuse for it. So, oh. yeah, there, there, there's stuff like that in there, but that's that's easy to dismiss because it's it's patently stupid. It's absurd. And, you know, I, I, I understand why they've made that connection. The stuff that sticks with you is the stuff that, you know, maybe they're 20% right or 30% right. And you can't just dismiss it as this person is a joyless, miserable person who, you know, the only fulfillment they're getting in their day is typing out a... a rubbish message on on youtube and that gives them a tiny little bit of a glimmer of a smile in their otherwise bleak existence wow that Uh, is a real that is a real persona you've built there chris (laughs) (laughs) i think it helps to uh to think about uh negative commenters as uh as uh sort of dickensian villains but uh (laughs) yeah um yeah, it's when people are, are right and, you know, they call you out for something that you've said, you've made a strong opinion about something or you've stated a fact and you're wrong. And when that's done in a constructive way, uh, it's not a problem. But when it's nasty and it's at least partially right, those are the ones that yeah. those are the ones that stick with you. And, you know, I'm not going to I have a policy of not um, giving any platform to anyone that's being negative. Uh, I don't talk about it a lot, but um, you'll see a lot of content creators from all sorts of niches, but particularly sim racing, you know, when they get stupid comments, they'll post them on Twitter and have a laugh about it, or they'll get angry about it. And at the end of the day, these these people are trolls, you know, they're there to gain attention and, you know, broadcasting it to a wider audience sort of defeats the object of it to me. So I'm not going to (coughs) repeat any of those comments, but there are probably half a dozen over the four or five years I've been on YouTube that I could probably remember word for word because Yikes. The, they terrible people were slightly right. Yeah. Yeah. But you yeah. generally try to respond to most of the messages on, on your YouTube video for a, a while, right? Yeah. I think for the first few years I responded to every single comment, you know, I, I, I'm sure a few, few slipped through the gaps, but it's at a stage uh, now where, I, I mean, it fluctuates, but we're probably talking over the body of videos. It's a couple of hundred comments a day. And if you're spending, and, and loads of these are really well thought out, thoughtful comments and lots of really good questions that require thought out answers. And 200 comments, if I just spent one minute on each one, that's three hours of every day gone straight away it's totally unsustainable and that's one of the worst things I, I think for me is is having to sort of transition away from responding to 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 everything so now i tend to just respond to stuff within a, a certain sort of time of the video being live and don't generally mm. go back too often to the older stuff because i mean the other problem is you don't you, you know they'll ask you a specific question you know 
Oh, you were talking about dampers during this video. You said something here, and you know what? What did you mean by this? I, was like, I don't know. I wrote. I, I filmed this four years ago. <laughs> right, <laughs> I've, yeah. got, I've got no idea. Right. And you know, you, you so watch you the mentioned... video, and you're still not sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're like, I don't even know what I was thinking. That I need to edit that now. <laughs> you mentioned making a, a track of an airport that you grew up near. Um, and actually, this comes from uh, one of our viewers as well, where he first saw your I made my own track for a set of course. I'm assuming we're talking about the same exact video there. And uh, Toby says that it he thinks it inspired a lot of casual modders. So like... Through that process of making your own track and getting it in an AC, what advice do you have for the people that kind of want to get into that? Because, you know, I've I've even myself thought at times, I'm like, you know what would be kind of cool? Just to put, like, my neighborhood in in a sim and just drive around in, a, who, in the who sim. Who hasn't? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, that, that, you know, my earliest memories of thinking about Formula One or being a Formula One fan was, you know, imagining what the walk to school would be like the roads I walked to school would be like with formula one cars going down. them. so this is no, yeah, this isn't a new, idea. it certainly isn't a, uh, a new right. idea for me. And I think it's something that's absolutely common to every racing fan, uh, out there. And what Assetto Corsa in particular has allowed is, is for people to dabble in that environment and produce those kind of things for themselves. Now I should be really clear. I produced this in a program called racetrack builder, uh, which is sort of like the equivalent to like it's like it's like Lego for a set of course of modding. Okay. It's not you don't. It, this isn't producing a beautiful scale model that's going to go in a glass cabinet in a museum somewhere that people are going to marvel at. It's producing something that's blocky and resembles mostly the warship or the aeroplane or okay. the car or yeah. whatever. So. What I did was a, uh, you know, it was a, a rough and ready thing that allowed me to live out a childhood dream and, uh, and do something fun and, you know, engage with a sim I really love in a different way. And I would advise everyone out there to have a go at that. But that, to call it modding, I think, is, is a big stretch. The difference between that and uh, what a you know, proper track modder for a set of course does is absolutely massive. You know, they're, they're producing uh, proper 3D models of, uh, of absolutely everything from the groundwork to the, the buildings to all the trackside features and stuff, doing thousands of hours of 3D modeling and producing all of the physics that work with the track and all the surface and the textures and everything else in a way that I just didn't do. I, I bought a, a Lego kit, a box of random parts, and I assembled it into a configuration that pleased me. And uh, it's a wonderful thing to do. To me. It's, it's a lot of fun, but it doesn't produce something that I think can be compared to, you know, say something by the likes of Lilski or Brun or, um, and I apologize to all the other aestheticals of track models out there, but I've, uh, Fat Alfie, uh, that was the one I was trying to think of. All these people producing great bodies of work in, in the aestheticals of track space with, uh, you know, beautifully, exquisitely detailed uh, tracks that they obviously have an affinity and affection for that they've absolutely slaved over for thousands <laughs> of hours. Whereas I, you know, spent maybe, you know, 40 or 50 hours on the projects, a lot of which was, you know, spent doing the filming side of things and capture and all of that as well. Right, right. So uh, that was sometimes, a very defensive answer, wasn't it? <laughs> no, no, it's fine. But sometimes, you know, when I sit and think about modders, because 
I'm a software developer, so I'm not doing 3D models and things, but the sheer dedication that these modders have to make these tracks, like you were saying, there's the, the attention to detail and the amount of hours that they spend, and then they throw it up on race department for free. I'm like, what? That is just <laughs> absolutely amazing, sir. But well, it's, 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 a, it's a, yeah, it's a fundamental issue within sim racing, actually, that you've touched on there, and that it's a hobby that, or a pastime, or uh, a lifestyle, if you want to go that far, that mm -hmm. inspires that kind of dedication, that kind of commitment. But if you produce anything for it, you are dealing with multi-billion dollar companies on the licensing side of things. This isn't, you know, this isn't like creating a mod for Half-Life or something where you put in a, you know, a thing that doesn't exist in real life and, you know, that's in the game and it's cool and it's fun. You're, you're putting something out there that has Porsche's logo on it and, it, you know, uh, all of their design language within it all of which is copyrighted and trademarked and yeah. and this that and the other so selling that stuff is really difficult and it's one of the uh interesting problems that i think Rensport are trying to solve uh with their platform it'll be interesting to see whether they manage to do that because details are, are fairly light at the moment but if we can get to a stage with um the way that licenses are handled between automotive manufacturers, racetrack owners, rights holders, etc., and people that want to create these mods or create content for The Sims with some sort of maybe third party in the middle uh, that can that can sort of manage that process, blanket negotiations, blanket allowances, whatever it is, but then we have something really interesting because, you know, I can look and say, hey, I really love the Group C era of sports car racing. Uh, I might have mentioned before. You know what? Well, there's no Lancia LC2. I'd really love to see that. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a car I love. I've never seen it in a racing sim. Maybe I'll go and, you know, I've dabbled in 3D modeling before. How much harder can it be to go from creating a cube with four legs <laughs> on it to going and producing a, uh, you know, highly optimized uh, <laughs> model for a racing sim? How hard could it be? Well, we asked uh, we asked Aris from Kunos a couple of weeks ago about that. I think from memory, Chris, he said it was fairly simple. No, not too much yeah, to it. Didn't spend it takes too like long an on evening. it. Yeah, something like that. Like, I don't know. <laughs> he just puts everything in a random number generator, though, doesn't he, Aris? Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you heard it here first. <laughs> Breaking news. Yeah, so, I would only on that... I would only say that of someone I respected deeply. So, <laughs> to caveat that. <laughs> So on that note then, because uh, we haven't got much time because we want to go and do some, some laps on, uh, on the Nordschleifer, um, but just looking ahead, and we touched on it there with, with Wrenchport, there's a question I've asked a few people now that I'm going to ask you, which is, you're going to teleport, well, teleport, Chris, help me out here, teleport, do I mean teleport, I mean, time capsule, you're going to go forward in time, is that, would that be a teleport? We can discuss that afterwards, go, we'll discuss that during the race, two different things. You're going to take a time capsule from here to five years in the future, right? What is the biggest difference that you're seeing in sim racing when you're there? Good question. Um, I think esports will be considerably bigger. It is at this stage a uh, fairly underrepresented part of sim racing in terms of audience. I think the audience is lagging behind the investment uh, and the audience is lagging behind 
the willingness and the intent of the various companies that are that are getting skin in the game. Uh, it feels to me, to some extent, like it's a self-fulfilling prophecy because so many people are involved at such a high level with such big budgets that it sort of eventually will find its way through brute force and ignorance if necessary. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think esports will be will be big. Uh, we already see it having a huge influence on the direction of things like uh well the way sims are being developed to cater towards it and the and platforms and and everything else so i think that'll be the biggest difference i can't see hardware being massively different and uh i think the sims themselves are in a position where they're in just a sort of gradual evolution process as well so i think we've to touch back to something chris asked earlier um i think we have reached a level of maturity with hardware where we're going to have slow progressions and then the occasional leaps and we're at that with sims as well i think the next the next big move is is from esports is that because is the reason that hardware and the sims themselves are growing at a slow pace now is that because sim racing is just that it's trying to simulate racing so there kind of is an end point here where what you do in your sim is very very similar to or simulating racing and we've been on this curve getting towards it and now we're so unbelievably close if you assume that you can never get g-force or you can maybe simulate g-force with the, the the margin that's left is so so small yeah well i mean i think that's sort of true with anything it's probably one of those uh, things that's got you know Dave it's called Dave's law or something you know as you try to uh, approach perfection uh, you know you need to double your efforts to mm, the law you know for every returns. you know it's a law of diminishing returns situation certainly but I'm sure there is uh, you know something that is more more specific than that um, that someone in the comments will inevitably point out and then I'll have learned something and that's great but um, <laughs> yeah I think the reality is in the early stages of development of of you know sim racing improvements were big they were big leaps you know you'd go from having a 2d uh single line drawing of the outline of a car like you had in revs to a few years later to everything being a sort of quasi 3d environment I don't think it was a full 3d environment but it's similar it it looked like it was a three-dimensional environment in in full color or CGA or VGA. Whether you can call either of those things full color is uh, is a debate I'm not <laughs> willing to get into right now. But uh, and then you know uh, leaping forward to like the PlayStation generation, the accessibility that brings, and you know the the law of finishing returns does step in quite hard, and you know. I think iRacing is a great case in point. I can't remember exactly when iRacing launched, but it's been around a good sort of decade now, a better part thereof. And yeah, the, the improvements to that have slowed down dramatically, you know. Um, and, you know, that's true across the board. You know, I think the biggest difference between, say, Assetto Corsa Competizione and Assetto Corsa, you know, uh, a difference of five years is the visual, on the visual side. Sure, the sounds are a bit better, and you know, uh, some of the multiplayer stuff's handled a bit better. The physics are a bit more refined, but you know, those are you know, they're steps, not leaps. So, in answer to your question, Tom, yes, <laughs> yes, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> how about how about you? What what direction do you want to go in? Um, in terms of content, or just where well, do I want well, to see sim racing going? Well, I suppose I kind of see 
you know, you are a content creator, but I would argue that you're more than just that in the sim racing world. You have a brand. You know, you have a cap, which isn't on. I right don't now. anymore. It's gone. <laughs> there's a cap. No, there's a cap. No, is, no is that full time? Full time? Is it that not, I have, not reappearing? Uh, I've gradually retired it, uh, along with the phrase "Hello, fellow sim racers," which I used for years. <laughs> then, uh, then Jardier started using it, and I thought, finally, I can stop saying this thing. Uh, <laughs> you handed over the baton. <laughs> people still come up to me and say, "Oh, hello, fellow sim racer." So I haven't said that for 18 months and I haven't worn the cap in a video for about six months and people still ask, where's the cap? So, <laughs> you, uh, these was... legacies die hard. So, well, but, but this is kind of my point, right? Is that you, you've kind of built a brand. As, you, know, you know, you're not just a YouTuber. You have a personal brand. You do commentary with esports and, and bits and pieces. So, you know, where do you kind of see yourself going in, in sim racing? Have you got an idea or? Uh, yeah, I, I think I touched on it earlier you know, I would love to be at a stage where I can produce content purely for the sake of creativity, for the love of producing interesting narrative-driven stuff within sim racing, whether that is, you know, in the same type of videos I produce now or, you know, or, or becoming a bit more grandiose with it probably not uh, i most of the ideas uh, that i have uh, are more about scale so it'd be the same similar kind of video so rather than you know for example you know reviewing a sim racing cockpit i would want to you know explore you know 15 different diy options for sim racing cockpits and so, uh, just you know with a budget and a team and the space and time to to take the ideas that I currently sort of have for a video and can do, but execute them on a level that I think is not possible right now. So rather than, you know, it's not a pedal review, it's a review of all of the pedals or just a comparative thing, rather than, uh, you know, knocking up a dodgy mod track in, in, in Racetrack Builder for Assetto Corsa, it's actually producing, commissioning uh, someone to produce that, thing properly releasing it to the community and and focusing more on the story side of it or mm. you know it's 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 all a, i think for me the interest still is in finding a better way to tell the story finding a better way to communicate my passion for sim racing and finding a way to keep making it fun talking of which let's go sim racing <laughs> i'm not really into that <laughs> <laughs> so pre prerequisite of the podcast i'm afraid so we're gonna go around and do some laps and uh whilst we are doing those laps we've had a few questions come in um on the chat so once i got into my car hey this is chris from gridfinder thanks for listening to the sim sundays podcast head on over to gridfinder.com to find your spot on the grid and join sim racing leagues for all your favorite games just enter your preferred game, car of choice, then let us know if you'd like to race PC, Xbox, or PlayStation, and we'll give you a list of actively recruiting leagues for you to join. And if you're a league owner, post your league on GridFinder so that you run with a full grid for every race. If you'd like to participate in the races featured in each episode of the Sim Sundays podcast, join our Discord server by going to gridfinder.com slash discord. We host a new car and track combo every Sunday at 8 p.m. UK time and stream it live to our YouTube channel. If you're looking to upgrade your sim rig, visit the episode sponsor TrackRacer at TrackRacer.com. Thanks for being here. Okay, so we are out of time. And 
I am. You know, I, <laughs> I made a joke earlier about, uh, luckily we've got a nice easy track, so I'm not going to be sweating. Turns out, turns out I am. Turns out I had the force feedback turned <laughs> up far too high for what we were doing there. And I am now. Full power? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. That was like a workout. Yeah, you kind of have to have the force feedback up high in, in, in a car like this to be able to really sort of feel it around, I feel. So, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll join you in the sweat boat. <laughs> okay, we've got one more question, and it's from AJH1990, who says, Classic question I've never asked you, Chris. You can drive any car and any track combo from any era. What do you pick? <laughs> Porsche 962 short tail and the Nordschleifer. Um, <laughs> no, sens sensible Jeez, answer. Sensible answer. Ooh. I think. I think it would have to be, and it might be a bit of a curveball, the GT1 Celine from. Uh, you know, 2004, 2006-ish. Where would I drive it? So many choices. So many really good choices. Maybe somewhere like Suzuka, you know. I think it's, it, there's a big part of me that wants to, you know, pick really specifically, like, like nerdy, era-appropriate and, <laughs> you know, car-appropriate tracks, uh, you know, which is why, you know, say something like the 962 or 956, uh, the Nordschleifer is actually a, probably actually a really good answer. But you're actually thinking Jeddah, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Abu Dhabi. <laughs> or the Miami maybe, Grand uh, Prix. <laughs> oh, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, no, you're right. That is definitely better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Oh, did you did you choose a track before I go? Because we got another question. Did you choose a track? Ah, uh, no, it's too hard. Sorry, AJ. <laughs> it's too hard. I can't. Okay, um, this is kind of a broad question. What is your favorite? This is from Thrill Junkies. What is your favorite GT3 car to drive on any sim? I've got to go with the Bentley. Um, just. Oh for entertainment factor i think it's far from the best at times depending on the sim i mean that does limit us in terms of sims as well uh yeah i in when with gt3 cars and to some extent gtes as well i always find myself drawn to uh to the front engine ones I, I like having to hustle the front end into corners and then it wanting to get away from you as you as you step on the gas there's something a bit more sort of classic gt car about that than you know driving something like a mclaren or an audi or a lambo which are just you know really nicely sorted out mid-engine track weapons so i think the thing that appeals to me about driving you know classic cars from the 60s and 70s and 80s kind of lives on a bit in the Bentley in so much as it ever possibly could in, in GT3. So yeah, I have to say it would be ACC for, for GT racing just because of the, the, the detail um, in the way the sim re reproduces the, uh, the racing experience as much as anything, if not the driving experience. So yeah, well, long-winded answer once again. Sorry. Well, it was another thorough <laughs> answer, and I'm pretty conscious that 
Chris and I just <laughs> chilling in our seats, just kind of on, <laughs> on the Zoom call now, just asking, asking you questions whilst you're still hounding around the track, <laughs> getting a sweat on, <laughs> providing some, yeah. pretty, some pretty thorough answers. <laughs> Um, but Chris, thank you so fun. much for coming on the. I can tell we can't stop you. <laughs> thank you uh, so much for coming on the podcast. Um, really appreciate it. It's been good. Um, is there anything you want to finish off with? Is there, is there, is there anything you want to? You've got coming up. You want to tell people about? Uh, there is a ma- absolutely massive announcement about something I'm doing that. I can't say anything about, but it's uh, oh. it's coming tomorrow. Oh, exciting! Uh, so I'm just going to park up the car now because uh, we'll call this done. Put a spoon in it. Um, <laughs> yeah, massive announcement tomorrow about something I cannot wait to tell everyone about. It's uh, an absolutely dream come true thing, and uh, well, just in case there's anymore. anyone Sorry. in the audience <laughs> at the moment that doesn't follow you on Twitter or Insta, wherever you primarily announce your stuff, what is your username over there? Uh, yeah, at Chris Hay on Instagram, and I think it's at Chris underscore A Hay SR on Twitter. I've got at Chris Hay, but it's registered to a, <laughs> an account that I no longer have access to, and Twitter won't oh, give me nice. it back. So, oh, uh, oh, damn you, that's Twitter. A- yeah, I actually, so I actually saw that. A, a rubbish one. I always read it as Chris Hay Senior. <laughs> I'm like, oh, Chris Hay Senior. I, oh, I hadn't thought about. Oh no, I have been too. Oh. Actually, <laughs> yeah. I, was like, I was like, who's Chris Hay Junior? <laughs> SR for sim racing. <laughs> yeah, right, it's two yeah, capital letters. Right, all right. Tom, I worked that out in before the we round out. No, before, no, 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 no. Important, important thing. Before we round out the podcast, something needs clearing up here. Two capital letters next to each other you read as letters right oh, this okay. is really relevant this is really relevant <laughs> if it's a big letter then a little letter you read it as a word which is why it's the ford k it's not the ford ka it's oh. big k little a this is this is from ford themselves um oh. you know, I, rang, I, I rang them up no it's in their press releases it was always called the ford k but everyone in the uk at least called it the ka despite it being a big k and a little a i never got that yeah, like, or the Ford car. That's the other I way mean, of pronouncing yeah, it. Is the well, Ford car, car which car. makes it sound like a very generic model. It honestly well, makes mo- it sound like you're just like with an accent saying car. Exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, Nigella Lawson would have said it as a Ford car, and then uh, <laughs> uh, my my good friend Paul Jeffrey would have called it a Ford car, and uh, that's absolutely <laughs> fine. I can well, we live can with either of those. The KA, not so good. We can test that theory because Paul is coming on the the podcast next month. So I'm going to ask him. Oh, I'm going to, we'll, we'll have to we'll have to put a picture up and be like, "How would you say this, Paul?" Because somebody else has come up with a theory. <laughs> <laughs> he'll, oh. he'll probably call it a KA because most people in the UK do. Now, now well, I've Chris, put we, words in his mouth. <laughs> we absolutely appreciate you being on the show. This was a fabulous episode. Thanks for joining us. No, a pleasure to be involved uh, anytime, guys. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, I mean, as you heard, if you're not following Chris on Twitter or Insta, go out and follow him because he's got a big thing coming tomorrow. Yeah. So that's pretty exciting. Also, if you're not following GridFinder, we're out there as well. Just search. For, it's probably just easier to search for Chris Hay or search for GridFinder, and then we'll be the first thing that pops up. But uh, 
This episode was sponsored by Track Racer. You know, just like I said in the beginning, if you're looking to upgrade your sim rig or I'll say it again, if you want to get off that desk mounted setup, go go check out their website at trackracer.com. Tom, is there any final things you would like to say before we say goodbye? Nope. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure and I'll uh, see you again very soon. Thanks everyone. Bye. Bye.